for the week of December 23rd, 2014. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello all, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, usually in Washington, D.C., but coming to you this week from a basement in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I'm out visiting the girlfriend's family this week for the Christmas holiday, so it is a mobile recording setup for me. I think they did a TV show out there in rural Wisconsin from a basement. <laughs> I assume you're uh, referring to that 70s show? <laughs> yeah, did they actually legalize pot down there in... Uh... In uh, Wisconsin as well? No, it's it's sort of like that show, except everyone is 30 to 50 years older and there's no marijuana. <laughs> well, I'm not just in a basement. I'm actually in a basement closet to avoid noise in the house. So, Jigger, you came to us from a Starbucks this year and a variety of places on the road. Catherine came to us from a town hall in the Adirondacks, and I figured it's only fitting that I pick a weird spot to record from. So back in their usual spots are my associates, Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. You just heard from Jigger. He is a clean tech investor, and he's based in New York City. You spreading any holiday cheer over there, Jigger? Well, you know, I did uh, go by Rockefeller Center and see some of the windows in front of Lord & Taylor. It really is a festive time. Do you have a lot of family there? Your wife is uh, still in Africa, correct? No, she get, came back for the holidays, and uh, her brother just had a baby, so my in-laws are staying with us, and so we're hosting Christmas uh, uh, on this side of the house. Oh, that's great. Well, Catherine Hamilton is in Washington, D.C. She's a partner with the public policy firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, what uh, exciting is happening in your world, in your home, the days before Christmas? It's just total and utter panic and chaos um, with four kids, two of whom will not tell me that they don't believe in Santa because then they're scared they're going to lose the loot. Uh, so they're all, you know, about to chew their arms off waiting for him to get here. And meanwhile, I'm still shopping because I'm at work right now. <laughs> and one of your sons, I know, has a microphone and likes to pretend like he's podcasting. Do you have any plans to get him a full recording set up? Oh, gosh. That's what he wants. He has actually asked for a new microphone, so we'll have to see. The next Jigger Shaw. Yeah. All right, folks, this is our last show of the year, and as usual, it is a three-parter, but we're going to stray from the week's top news and instead focus on the top news of the entire year. Firstly, we'll give our picks for the most important news item of the year. Then we'll choose the most overblown story of the year. Finally, our story to watch in 2015 and... Like usual, we'll end with our Tell Me Something I Don't Know segment. Catherine, uh, we're going to start with you. You get to start with your most important news item of the year, and I'm just going to take a wild guess here. It has something to do with this little government office that no one really pays much attention to called the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh, I thought you were going to say FERC. Um, yes, you're absolutely correct. It's EPA's clean power plan, the draft 111D greenhouse gas rule that came out last summer. I think that is absolutely the biggest story of the year in my world anyway. Um, and I think it has going to have enormous ramifications uh, for years and years to come. So what are the chances that the administration can't hit its deadlines and won't get this completed before Obama leaves office. Is there is there any what are you watching for in 2015 to determine how on time they're going to be with this rule? Well, they have some statutory deadlines. So that drives a lot of the process. 
Um, next summer, they're supposed to come out with the final rule. I, I just, I don't know that that's going to slip that far, although they have millions of comments to go through and to try to figure out how to incorporate them in some way into their, the final rule. Um, and then by the t- summer of 2016, the states will have submitted plans or ask for a deferral, but will have responded in some way. I mean, states are already starting to, to think about this, of course, and react to it and figure out what they're going to do. Um, my sense are going to be a few big things that happen. One is that, of course, a lot of folks who don't agree with this um, are going to want to try to, you know, come, you know, have some legal arguments against it. Um, states, some of the states are going to do that. On the other hand, there are also going to be some really creative ideas, and you're going to start seeing, I think, approaches that are going to prove that this is not going to be costly, and in fact, is going to be incredibly cost effective to implement. And um, and that's going to have a much wider spread impact than you might think. So, I, for example, I was talking to Nicole Steele, who is the head of Grid Alternatives, uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, section of Grid Alternatives that Erica Mackey, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, leads up in San Francisco. And um, she said that she thinks that this rule is going to really help underserved communities, that solar is going to become much more widespread, that people are going to set aside more funding for it for underserved communities, and that, of course, the cost will just continue to come down. There are sort of two parallel tracks going on here. One is EPA saying it's sort of no longer acceptable to just spew forth all these chemicals into the air and that you actually have to at some point figure out how to get a handle on all this stuff. Um, and on the other side, there's all these like good news stories on the clean energy side that are, I think, making people hopeful that this transition is actually possible and so that it's not all bad news that we're shutting down 70,000 megawatts of coal from the coal industry's perspective. But it's actually good news because we can replace it with clean stuff. Yeah, it's kind of like the way we were talking last week about – you know, the climate agreement that business keeps chugging along and keep developing cheaper, keeps developing cheaper and cheaper solutions. And I think that's just going, that's going to help not only climate negotiations, but also EPA's greenhouse gas rule. So you think this is said and done, this is going to happen on time, and there you know, won't be the type of congressional op- opposition that could derail it? I did not say that at all. (laughs) I mean, of course, there's a ton of congressional opposition, and that's one of the big goals of the Republicans is to try to stop it from happening. I just think that they're not going to be completely successful at that at all. This is something that's in statute. It's been upheld at the Supreme Court. And I think, um, you know, they're going to try everything they can, as will a lot of the different industry sectors. But I think this is still the biggest story of the year. And it's going to keep going. I'm not, I don't know if it'll, it may slip a little bit, but I think it's going to keep moving ahead. And I think it's a huge part of Obama's legacy. Mm. Jigger, you're up next. I know you are going to nominate Dirt Cheap Solar. So my story is really just a complimentary story, I think, to Catherine's, which I think is absolutely one of the top stories of the year. I, my sense is, is that one of the stories that really started catapulting this in the mainstream was the story around how Austin Energy... Uh, switched horses last minute from Sun Edison to Recurrent because um, the price per kilowatt hour that came out was less than five cents a kilowatt hour for solar power. And um, and I think that that really just sent shockwaves throughout the industry, even though that number is after the 
investment tax credit and accelerated depreciation. I just think a lot of utility executives as well as Lazard and others, you know, just sort of came out with all this material saying solar is here. It is finally deserving of your respect and you must pay attention to it. And I just think that that was a bellwether. Yeah. And our uh, researchers wrote quite a bit on this. And I recently wrote a very short story based on their data. And they showed that this year, contracts consistently came in between four and a half cents and seven and a half cents per kilowatt hour for utility scale plants. And that's around a third of the price what we saw between 2008 and 2010. Really incredible uh, price drops. Yeah. And I think it makes the 111D stuff a lot easier because it's not just solar. I think solar is always this extraordinary phenomenon that, that just inspires people and it's wonderful to be a part of it. But I think that there's a lot of other stuff that sort of, you know, is on the coattails of solar, whether it's, um, you know, a lot of energy efficiency breakthroughs that happened this year. I think there were, um, the, it was the, there was the first um, securitization of a PACE uh, financing done by Deutsche Bank. And then I think there's a lot of movement around um, LED lighting retrofits. And so I think there's just a lot of good news coming one after another that shows that this 111D stuff is going to be a lot less costly than people think it's going to be to implement. Of course, uh, this ITC factor is a big one for utility scale solar. So a lot of developers are rushing their projects into 2016, even when they have a, a contract signed for 2017, uh, and they're willing to go without a contract for a year just to capture the ITC. So uh, we're going to go from over 7 gigawatts of installations in 2016 to less than a gigawatt in 2017 if that tax credit is phased out. What is the market indicating to you, Jigger? Do you think that it will fall off that much? Well, I mean, Shale and I talked about it at the Green Tech Media Conference um, in San Diego. And I mean, I think when you look at the data in Germany as well as in the UK, when they drastically reduced rebates, um, the markets actually stayed pretty flat. Um, it went down a little bit, but it stayed pretty flat. And I think the reason for that is because um, the supply chain will just cut its margins to be able to make the numbers work. And so I, I don't First of all, I think 2016 is going to be way in excess of 10 gigawatts, um, and I think it, it it could approach 20 gigawatts. And I think in 2017 we'll probably be you know roughly flat to slightly lower than that because I think people will just compress their margins to be able to keep the um, keep the volume up. The uh, one other element to this story that I think is important to mention is that many of these utility scale contracts are being signed outside of renewable portfolio standards in. Colorado, in Utah, in Georgia, uh, coming up in Mississippi, we are seeing prices that are competitive with natural gas and utilities are finding that solar is the cheapest resource and they're not doing it because of mandates. So another very important element to that story. Well, but but Catherine, I'd love your advice on that. I, I think these utilities are a lot smarter than that. And I think that they're looking at this solar not only because it's cheaper, but I think it also bodes well for their 111D compliance, and they're saying we might as well get it in while the 30% tax credit's providing a blue light special. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that um, this is why you see the whole Southeast open up, which has been historically pretty much saying we don't have any renewable energy resources. Um, and now, guess what? They do. <laughs> so I think they're definitely hedging on that. And this is a, it's smart. And, uh, 
you know, good for the utilities to do that. I hope that still allows other, you know, the developers to come in in a competitive way. But um, I, I think it bodes well for the Southeast. Yep, good story, Jigger. Certainly one uh, we're going to continue to follow. Mine is, uh, mine's on Germany. So after careful consideration, I decided to nominate Germany's energy transition as one of the most important stories of the year for, for mixed reasons. So why would I pick Germany, which has pretty much been at the top of the news every year for the last decade, which is seemingly old news? Um, it's traditionally been held up by people who advocate a very fast transition to renewables as an example of what America needs to do. But starting last year and well into this year, that started to change, um, I think, in the press and in my conversations with people. And then I think that has to do with the realities about Germany finally setting in. The country is dealing with very high legacy costs of its feed-in tariff, and many people, including Jigger on this podcast, have touted it as an example of how not to overpay for solar. Germany's main energy association recently reported that half of the country's electricity prices, which are some of the highest in Europe, are made up of taxes and fees. More than one-third of those are from renewable energy. Um, Of course, Germany's carbon emissions are up this year because it's burning more coal while phasing out nuclear. None of this is really brand spanking new news, right? I mean, almost a year ago, we tried to put many of these factors into context on this podcast. I recommend people actually re-listen to that from December 8th, 2013. It is called uh, Germany, Clean Energy Success Story or Cautionary Tale. That was a fun one to put together. And uh, definitely, if you want to revisit these in more detail, go back and listen to it. But even since we did that show, the, uh, the, the perceived and the very real negatives in Germany have started to have a deeper impact on the way people are talking about the country in the U.S. And I think, I, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, you guys. I think fewer and fewer people are pointing to the country and saying, we need to be like them. I noticed it in a big way in 2014. And then, sorry, I'm being a little long-winded here because I just had a bunch of points I wanted to make. I don't want to get a lot of hate mail from people on this, but because there's a lot of good coming out of Germany this year as well. The country has embarked on subsidy reform, and nearly everyone in politics, even as it reforms subsidies for renewables, agree that clean energy should be a top priority. And that's pretty unique, particularly compared to the U.S., and I think just reflects the values of Germans, which drove the country's push in the first place. It's also one of the test beds for solar plus storage along with like Australia, potentially Hawaii and Italy, because the feed-in tariff is now lower than retail rates. It makes sense to self-consume and people can install storage. The next couple of years, the country could be installing as many as 20,000 residential battery storage systems a year. Um, and a lot of power electronics and storage companies have honed in on Germany as a first-mover market. And then finally, of course, this year saw historic changes to utilities stimulated by the turmoil in the country's energy markets. And E.ON is divesting from fossil fuels and focusing on customer-centric distributed renewables. RWE, the second biggest utility there, is developing a similar plan. And I think the importance of that shift is pretty hard to understate, in my opinion. So very long-winded explanation. But for all those reasons, good, bad, and uh, in between, Germany really still rises to the top for me in 2014. I agree with you. Look, I think that Germany deserves all of the credit that it seeks and it deserves because I think that when you think about the top story um, from this year out of Germany is the RWE story. Um, sorry, the EN, EN story. Yeah. yeah, the EN story. I, you know, I just think that knowing how this p- movie ends is important. 
for regulators in the United States. I mean, knowing that that's probably what's going to happen to NextEra and Exelon and all these other companies is that the regulated businesses are basically going to, um, you know, take on a lot of the liabilities and they're going to probably shift all of their coal assets and other assets there. Um, and then their their growth story is really going to come out of clean energy. I think it's a great sort of way to encapsulate this. Yeah, and I would say that at NARUC when I was in San Francisco and then at other NARUC meetings as well, I mean, they've had whole panels dedicated to Germany and it's always been held up as this cautionary tale, not knowing what the end would look like. But I think looking at what's happening with Eon, as you say, this is – uh, this will help our regulators figure this out. And for whatever whatever fear that they have and whatever fear the utilities have, they have a ton of renewables over there. <laughs> They've actually deployed the stuff. And and you know, now you can see what's gonna happen. And I think uh I think it could help us. Do either of you agree that you're hearing less talk in say advocacy circles about Germany as the perfect example for what the US should live up to? I feel like there, you know, from 2006 onward, Germany was always this great shining example. And in the last couple of years, particularly in 2014, I have noticed a shift in the way people talk about Germany. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't hear people on the advocacy side saying, let's be like Germany. No. No, I mean, I, yeah. I can't imagine that that would be a narrative. Yeah, exactly. I, well, I, but I think that that happened because we were the other big story from this year that you know i think relates to this is the end of the california solar initiative and how we were able to anal analyze that and show that it was actually far cheaper than we thought it was going to be um to accomplish this and so now instead of saying let's be like germany you can say let's be like california which was far cheaper than the german program but both markets are very successful and neither market actually has rolling blackouts because we invested in all sorts of renewable energy. So I think they can both be heralded as engineering successes um, and you can actually replace the German feed-in tariff with the you know, California um, you know, performance-based incentive. Next up, uh, let's hear our candidates for the stupidest or most overblown story of the year. And uh, I'll go to Jigger first on this one. I was actually surprised to hear that you didn't have a utility story or anything to do with the Energy Information Administration. What's your story? <laughs> well, you know, I think that the stupidest story of the year has to be solar freaking roadways. Um, <laughs> I thought you loved that thing. Well, I love it from the fact that they actually had this really interesting viral video. I wish that the solar industry figured out how to do a viral video with something that actually made more sense than driving on um, hexagonal um, tiles uh, made of sort of glass. I thought that uh, in our podcast on that show, you said that you were appreciative of inventors reaching for big goals. And I am. I am. Absolutely. But I still think it's the stupidest story of the year because, look, people should absolutely take risks. But sometimes when you take a risk, you can be, you know, Jigger Shaw's stupidest story of the year. I'll, the reason why I don't think it's stupid is because Every time I've seen a new family member or a friend who knows nothing about solar, it's always a talking point. And they ask me, well, what about this solar roadways thing? And I can tell them what it's all about. And then it opens up this opportunity to talk about solar generally. And that's been a pretty positive thing, in my opinion. But there's a lot of people that you don't actually get to talk to. And then they actually go, oh, solar is going to be perfect for roadways one day. I talk to a lot of people, Jiggy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other, the other stupid story that I had was, remember, we talked earlier in the year about 60 Minutes. 
Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. And their stupid story. But the funny thing is, is that you know, even though I thought sixty minutes did a horrible job of talking about clean tech, um, what was interesting was you know, Kior basically has filed for bankruptcy. Jivo is at like thirty cents a, a share. So a lot of Vinod Kosla's sort of biofuels bets have really gone south this year. Robert Rapier called a lot of those bets going south. He did. He really is one of the the most uh, prescient people in the in the space. There's also somebody who's a bit of a curmudgeon, uh, Lindsay Levin, who has a great blog called Green Explored, who is uh, is uh, is got an obsession with Vinod Kosla. Yeah, he 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 does not like Vinod Kosla at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in 2015 we need to talk more about biofuels. Yes, I think we can absolutely agree to that, uh, Catherine. I know yours has to do with the show last week on loan guarantees, right? Yes. So remember how Jonathan Silver kind of reaffirmed for us how successful the loan guarantee program is, that the estimated loss ratio is only 2% of their total commitments, that um, they've, uh, when they did their report back in November, eight, $810 million in interest payments had been made, and they'd only lost $780, members, eight, $780 million. So it more than covered the bankruptcies, and it's just going to continue to do that. Well, when that report came out from the Loan Guarantee Program, there was a story that came out in, in Greenwire. And I don't know if you remember, but Fred Upton – who is the chair of House Energy and Commerce Committee from Michigan. Uh, and was, the famous uncle of Kate Upton. That's correct. Oh, really? That's I didn't probably know that. how he's better known these days, But he, but except to people like me. Um, so he and Daryl Issa, who was at that, who was until this coming session was the, you know, the chair of government oversight committee, um, just beat up relentlessly on the program. They hauled everybody up there over and over, including Jonathan and everybody else at DOE and the white house telling them how horrible it was. When this report came out, Here's what Fred Upton had to say. It appears our thoughtful congressional oversight stopped the bleeding of taxpayer dollars. Our work helped force DOE to make changes and improve its stewardship. So he totally took credit for this program that had been chugging along, that was actually doing really well, but that he had then tried to dismantle. So I say that's the craziest story out there. You know, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but... uh... Daryl Issa, Fred Upton, and others who were at the forefront of criticizing this program were some of the loudest in advocating for stimulus money through the loan guarantee program coming to their districts. So we documented this very closely uh, as the, the more criticism mounted of the loan guarantee program. And many of the leading Republicans were some of the more f- most forceful when advocating for money in their districts through loan guarantees and supporting some of the companies that were uh, developing manufacturing facilities or projects in their districts. So I'm not really surprised, but certainly an excellent candidate for stupidest of the year. Yeah, and while Daryl Issa is term limited out of his position uh, as chairman of oversight, Jason Chaffetz from Utah will be taking his place, and I don't expect the tone to change much. The one thing that you can say is that when you've got someone like you know, these guys who are actually changing their tune towards a program like the Loan Guarantee Program, then we could chalk that up as a win. 
Yeah, that's true. And I and I think it means that they probably won't be totally focused on taking it down in 2015, which is good. So maybe maybe uh, Peter Davidson will get a lot more done. All right. Uh, I'm going to nominate grid defection as the most overblown story of the year. So a lot of people are asking, including us, will co- consumers start leaving their utility entirely as batteries and solar get cheaper and rates go up? And I think anyone who thinks that consumers are going to start defecting from the grid en masse, particularly here in the U.S., is just way off base. So we've talked about it a ton on this show. We're guilty of pushing the narrative to some degree, but I feel like we've been pretty cautious about the whole thing. So you will remember, of course, we had RMI's John Kreitz on the show. The the meme around grid defection started with a really good report from RMI in February showing that within a decade, tens of millions of customers around the U.S. could find that solar plus storage is competitive with the grid, with uh, their conventional energy supplies today. Um, Now, John Kreitz was careful to say that he didn't think grid defection is the economically optimal solution for customers or that it would necessarily happen because of this crossover. But in theory, it could. And utilities should just start paying attention to it now. But that didn't stop others from running with this theme this year. And uh, I think the biggest one that stuck at, stuck out for me was this analysis from Morgan Stanley, and these analysts said that that uh, it was back in August they released this. They think fixed charges on net metered solar would drive solar customers to leave the grid entirely, and I think it failed to point out that people just they're not going to leave the grid just because they can get electricity a few cents cheaper from their own system. There's convenience factors. There's, the, uh, of course, upfront capital costs. There's the trust of technology and the trust of the utility. Uh, and when you consider the, the psychological barriers, I think very few people are going to want to leave the grid entirely. And then um, on top of that, like all the leading companies pushing these technologies say they don't want to take people off the grid anyway. So I nominate grid defection as the most overblown story of the year. Still very important one, but I think overblown. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I think that I understand the rationale for why you chose the story, but I think that at the end of the day, the fact that people talked about this like so much, I remember when solar was the most overblown story of the day back in sort of 2005, 2006, when you know NRDC and others were putting renewable portfolio standards on the ballot, and we were arguing as to whether there should be a solar carve-out. And so I just think that the fact that this story forced every single utility board in the United States to actually consider this concept um, is a direct result of the fact that there's, you know, whatever it is, 0.0001% of utility customers who actually are thinking about cutting the cord from the grid just to teach the grid a lesson. Do you really think that just because the economics of these technologies are getting better, that that will somehow overcome the psychological barriers of people cutting from the grid? I mean, I think there are so many other elements to grid defection that people fail to recognize when doing these economic analyses. RMI did a great follow-up to its report and explained exactly why they didn't think people were going to leave the grid uh, in in masses. Uh, But they show that the economics are getting close in certain markets. And for me, the people who are saying that grid defection is going to happen are failing to separate the psychological barriers with the, the, the economic crossover. Oh, yeah, but I think the to- important thing is that it would be cost effective. It doesn't mean people will do it, but that's okay. It still makes regulators think about it. It makes utilities think about it and think about, well, maybe it's not as expensive as we thought it was. So, I mean, I, I definitely think it's worth talking about, even if, if the defection itself won't happen anytime soon. And I'm happy to be called a conflator. 
<laughs> I mean, look, I mean, the fact that people who are less educated than we are on these topics are willing to consider it serious, I happily use that politically to my advantage. And I think that that's politics. I mean, Catherine deals with this every day. There's lots of things like loan guarantee programs and other things where there's a 0.01% chance that something happens, but it prevents a vote on immigration or it prevents a vote on whatever. Well, whether or not it's overblown, we are going to be talking about it uh, more than a few times in the coming year, I'm suspecting. So stay tuned for that. And uh, stay tuned for the rest of the stories in 2015, which we will now predict what are the most important stories coming up. Uh, what are we watching for? Jigger, you have one that surprised me, actually, related to car sharing. What's your, what's, what are you watching for in 2015? So I think that Uber and car sharing um, more broadly – Right, and this inc- not just their competitors, but things like Zipcar, Car2Go, DriveNow, all these other types of companies are going to get to the point where they are going to con- convince cities to actually allocate parking spaces to them and take them away from the public because that they are actually looking to make their transportation system more efficient and that those parking spaces are actually real estate that those companies are going to pay for which right now is provided as a free good to the citizens of that city, I think cities are going to make a killing on a lot of the revenue that they're going to get from allocating those parking spaces to private sector companies. Do you see this happening already? Yeah, so take D.C. as an example. So Car2Go in D.C. basically just paid D.C. a million dollars and said, we'd like to park our parking spots as any legal spot. doesn't matter whether it's a you know, zone eight only or zone six only or whatever, every single one of those spots is eligible for car to go and we won't pay any, you know, fines or whatever for being in the wrong spot. And so DC made a million dollars out of that. Catherine, you've got your eyes on the Supreme Court. Why is that? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm going to walk out for just a minute, but I guess y'all are used you? to that by now. No. Yeah. Not so you. order order 745 is a huge huge deal. We need to watch it in 2015. Um what happened, you all have probably heard me talk about this uh, in previous podcasts is that uh the US Circuit Court vacated order 745 which was um allowing the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to um pay full the full rate that a generator would be paid in the energy markets for demand response and it's been enormously successful program it's brought billions of savings to consumers and tens of thousands of megawatts of you know less need for peaker plants so with a vacation of that order, um, it was written extremely broadly, which is why there's potential for an appeal, um, because it actually is written so broadly that it would that it would appear that if that if it held, if that opinion held, um, it would not just affect energy markets, but it could also affect capacity markets, and it could also affect more than just demand response. It could affect energy efficiency or storage or anything other than just traditional generation. So the timeline right now um, and what we worked really hard to do was to get the U.S. Solicitor General and the U.S. government more holistically, because the Solicitor General is simply the lawyer for the federal government, to consider this an important enough public policy that it would appeal this case to the Supreme Court. And, in fact, uh, the U.S. Solicitor General did ask for an extension and, an int- and filed an intent to file a writ that would 
appeal it to the Supreme Court. Those briefs are due January 15th. The amicus briefs are for, and so those briefs are going to be by the parties in the case. Um, amicus briefs are going to be due mid-February. And the hope is that the Supreme Court will have time enough to look at these and take a decision to take this up in the fall when they come back. It's going to be very tight, but hopefully by, by April they will know whether they'll take it up in the fall because if they don't, it could be pushed another year and wreak havoc because what's happened is that in the meantime, states, utilities, PJM have all filed different um, pay, white papers that say, all right, well, if this happens, then this is how you ought to do it. And in fact, PJM said, hey, I think then um, if this holds, then the load-serving entities are going to need to do demand response. All right, so load-serving entities are, are the utilities whose goal is to sell electricity, not curtail electricity. So it actually puts it in absolutely the wrong hands. Um, and not only does it wreak havoc on, you know, peaker plants, about having to build more peaker plants, about costs going up, but it also really seriously impacts the ability for the clean power plan to go and to be successful because demand response is a huge component of how and and other aggregated clean energy resources are huge tools in the toolkit on how we're going to meet uh, the clean power plan. Well, there's a reason why a lot of these companies are expanding to international markets. They're going to year-round demand response. They're investing in software to do broader intelligent energy management. So this diversity uh, is good for companies facing these legal challenges. Who would have thought demand response at the Supreme Court? All I can say is, Catherine, you bring the wonk into the wonk wonk. Yes, I know. Sorry about that, guys. But this is what I'm watching in 2015. It's a big story. I agree completely. All right. I was going to stay away from the obvious story, but uh, since neither of you picked it, I felt like I had to choose oil and gas prices as a story to watch in 2015. It just wouldn't feel right to leave it out. Uh, natural gas prices in the U.S. are at two-year lows now due to warmer temperatures and increased production. Global oil prices, of course, have dropped nearly 50% since June. People are asking, how does it impact clean energy? Um, of course, our savvy listeners here know that most of the progress we're seeing in renewables is in electricity markets where oil doesn't necessarily directly compete, except for in you know remote locations where you might have uh, biogas or solar or wind supplanting diesel. Uh, some see electric vehicle adoption slowing down a bit, very wide scenarios for EV adoption. Certainly, next generation biofuels are hurting. You know, many of them could barely compete with $100 a barrel oil, so those are going to get compromised. Uh, but on the flip side, it's important to note that Americans are consuming less oil per dollar of GDP than at any time over the last four decades. And over the last six or seven years, the connection between oil consumption and GDP growth has been cut. And uh, we're seeing this short-term boost in Hummers, but most analysts expect the uh, the efficiency, the economy-wide efficiency to keep getting better. And I think that EIA said that gas consumption might stay flat in 2015, which is pretty remarkable considering the I think it was 88 days in a row now that gas prices have fallen. So big questions in 2015. How long are these low prices going to last? Uh, depending on how they last, are they going to kill the case for renewables where they could have replaced expensive diesel? And what are they going to do to the economics of unconventional fossil fuels in America and uh, Canada? And this is where I get to be self-serving because we are going to try to answer those questions in our first show of the year. We've got uh, Michael Levy 
He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations coming up. He's one of the sharpest and most grounded energy analysts I've met on these issues. So we're going to link back up with him and uh, talk about that in our second week of January. But, uh, you know, who knows? This could be the most important story of the year for 2015 or it could be the most overblown story of the year. Well, we'll have to ask Michael whether he actually believes the IA. I'll let you ask him that. <laughs> All right, folks, it's time to finish the show, and uh, we'll tell you something you do not know. It's the last one of the year, and we'll try to make it a good one. Catherine, no pressure. You're first. Okay, great. And I always feel like it's a little bit presumptuous for, say, for us to say it's something we don't people don't know, because they may already know this, but um, we hit 100 women in the House, not hit, we, we got to 100 <laughs> women, sorry, 100 women in the House of Representatives, 63 Democrats and 17 Republicans and 20 minute women in the Senate. So this is great. In the House of Representatives, uh, the um, top female is the head, uh, the chair of the House Republican Conference, Kathy McMorris Rogers. She said when she started out, she was told, and she was in the Washington State House at the age of 25. She was told when she started running for office to focus on getting married and having children. So she did that. She got married and had three children the whole time she was in Congress. So um, it can be done. Uh, but a lot of these women have had huge uphill battles. Um, and there still is not are not that many women leaders in the House. In the Senate, um, eight of the what will be in the 114th Congress ranking members um, are going to be women um, uh, in Senate major committees. And then, of course, uh, Lisa Murkowski is the chair of Senate Energy, which is enormously important. So um, women are doing pretty well in Congress these days. Certainly a, a nice counter story to the earlier story this year when Kirsten Gillibrand came out and talked about all the sexist remarks from members of Congress. Oh, they still get that. I know they totally get that. And it's always been an uphill battle for these folks. And it's really hard to recruit women to run for office. But it's great that there are 100 now in the House. It's a great story. Absolutely. Jigger, can you match that? Sure. What do you got? Uh, so, so XL Energy in Minnesota um, did an RFP for solar gardens and um, was shocked to see 427 applications from energy developers, a much bigger response than they anticipated, for a total of 420 megawatts of solar, which is roughly 3% of the peak output of Minnesota. So that's not bad. Um, and they're not going to pick everybody, but um, I'm – you know, like I'm myself are pleasantly surprised that uh, the solar garden people, you know, have gotten their act together to the point where they can get 427 applications in. Well, I was having a conversation with some folks last night here in Wisconsin, a lot of Minnesotans, and they asked, what are some of the most progressive states in the country in terms of clean energy policy? And I said, well, actually, your home state of Minnesota is pretty good in solar. And they were shocked to hear that. So this community energy story came up and certainly a good one. And you also told them about the freaking roadways when you, at the same time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it said that that was the hottest story of the year. Don't listen to my friend Jigger Shah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, yeah, because you said people from New Jersey weren't as smart as people from New York. <laughs> Just the governor. If people don't know what we're talking about, that is uh, from our live show in New York City where... Catherine might have misinterpreted Jigger's comments. Things were on said. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> another, another episode that people should go back and listen to. Yeah, exactly. 
we have 67 episodes that you should listen to, so you can go back and listen to all of them. <laughs> uh, I've got an interesting one. I, I hope it's not de- too depressing. It's related to climate change. I like to bring up climate change for my last stories. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about this decade and a half pause in global surface warming after uh, a steep rise in temperatures from the 1920s onward. Scientists have been studying this very closely for for years and looking into how the oceans might have been collecting heat uh, because ocean temperatures are going up, but surface temperatures are not. Uh, This week, we we, we might have gotten closer to an answer. According to researchers who are studying stony coral, uh, and how these, this coral has reacted to peaks and valleys in global warming over the years. A change in Pacific trade winds, uh, which happens every couple of decades, uh, is likely the cause. The research was published in the journal Nature Geoscience, and they found that a cycle in Pacific winds was causing cooler waters to rise to the surface of the oceans, helping stabilize surface temperatures. And when those winds shift once again in coming years, they warn that warmer warmer equatorial water will once again rise and accelerate surface temperature warming very quickly. Uh, So this was a story that this pause in global warming was one pushed very heavily by global warming deniers in 2013 and 2014. And this very important piece of research, which just came out this week, gives us very good context around the variables at play here. And I guess I should mention, too, that 2014 is likely to be the hottest year on record anyway, even with that stabilization of surface temperatures. That is all for the show this week and for the year. For all our back episodes, around 60 hours worth of them, you can go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. As you start thinking about your news consumption priorities for the new year, hopefully this podcast remains at the top of your list in Green Tech Media as well. We work very hard to get beyond the headlines and provide some context to the clean tech news uh, on the website and in this podcast. If you don't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can uh, do that by plugging your email address into the sign-up bar in the top right corner of the page at greentechmedia.com. And of course, subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. Pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Uh, a lot of our growth and listenership has actually been from word of mouth, so we appreciate you passing along the word. I want to thank every single one of our listeners for supporting the show this year. We hear from a lot of you through email, and it motivates us all to know that people are so engaged with the show. And lastly, thanks to Catherine and Jigger, who take uh, time every week out of their extremely busy work and personal lives to do this show. It is always a high point of my week. Catherine, enjoy the holidays, and we'll uh, look forward to reconnecting in the new year. Thanks. It's a high point of my week, too. It's it's totally fun every week to be able to talk to you all and know that there are other people out there listening who don't care if I walk out. Indeed. Jigger, same to you. Happy holidays. Happy happy uh, Chrismica. Chris, Chris, Chris Kwanzaa. <laughs> or as I like to celebrate it, Festivus. That's right. The Festivus for the rest of us. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Happy holidays, and we'll catch you next year.